taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, in Ronan, Montana, this is uh, the Bellator Christie Podcast. And we're going to start off with a with a word of scripture coming today from First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter, uh, chapter one, verse three, which says, "God's divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for so much for the engagement we've had with uh, everyone. Uh, we've had some good emails and some good questions, and we thank you for that. Uh, hope everybody enjoyed the the last week's podcast as we kind of uh, dove through some questions that we actually had come into the Bellator Christie uh, website. We just thank you for that engagement. So why don't we pull up a seat today and let's listen in as we engage with our uh, our guest today. So uh, Brian, hello Brian. Why don't we go ahead and introduce our guest? Uh, yeah, we want to introduce uh, Ben uh, w- uh, <laughs> Whittington. Is that right? Whittington. Yeah, Ben Whittington. He is an yes, adjunct. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to make sure I said that right. He is an adjunct professor at Williamson College, upper school teacher at Providence Christian Academy in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Uh, not too terribly far from us here in Pilot Mountain, North Carolina. Uh, he's an adjunct instructor at Volunteer State Community College, adjunct professor at the Ivy Tech Community College of Indiana Lafayette, adjunct professor of philosophy at College of DuPage, former Latin instructor, instructor at Highland Rim Academy, studies at Birmingham, UK. My goodness, you are one busy dude. <laughs> so we want to welcome with us Ben Whittington today. Thank you for that. I um, actually have never thought about this, but I probably should say nothing I say represents these institutions. <laughs> I've never said that, but I should probably give that caveat. Uh, nothing I say necessarily represents these institutions. But yeah, I, I so yeah. So my primary occupation, and certainly, I'm a you know, I'm a, I'm a follower or Lord, you know, at being a Christian. Uh, certainly, a part of my identity. And then I'm a father of a wonderful wife named Emily, who's a nurse. Uh, sorry, husband to wife, and I'm father to two girls, uh, Hadassah and Isla, five and two. And uh, I I do teach at Providence Christian Academy in Murfreesboro. Um, I teach Latin and logic there, and I teach at Williamson College mm-hmm. and uh, the College of DuPage currently. Um, those are my main things that I do for work. And I also work, um, work slash study at the University of Birmingham, in the UK, uh, under some great scholars, uh, I, I doubt anyone before that. Uh, Eugen Nagasawa is my main advisor, and then UC Sukanan, who's my other advisor there. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to be with them. I've I, I a year left in my studies there, but I, I do it via distance. Um, I learned a couple things which are semi-interesting. Uh, first of all, it's not the University of Birmingham like I assumed it was coming from Tennessee. <laughs> Um, it is the University of Birmingham. Birmingham, uh, yeah. I, I also learned when I went over there that they tell time uh, day, month, year, not month, day, year. That was a big surprise. Um, 
So I emailed Eugen, my supervisor, kind of frantically of like, they got my start date wrong because I they got the date and the month different and I thought they messed me up, but I was just confused American. Um, I, I, I will say too, not to shamelessly plug something, but I'm a huge Ted Lasso fan. I adore the show Ted Lasso. I don't know if you've seen this. It's awesome. Um, but one of the things I love about the show, if you've watched it, is that in the show, it's an American uh, football coach coaching British football professionally <laughs> over there. And um, one of the, it sort of, it shows all these great American euphemisms and like American like customs and British customs. And one of my favorite ones that it shows that I experienced when I was in Britain, kind uh, uh, of recently, was that in Britain they do this weird thing where they give you sparkling water with everything. It's like, hey, kind of water. But like, here you go. Here's your still water, and here's your sparkling water. And they'd always yeah. give you both. <laughs> and it was the strangest thing to me. And I, they'd always ask, like, which one do you want? And they, they would always give you both. And I was never used to that. And uh, in Ted Lasso, there's these great scenes where he, like, gets sparkling water unsuspectingly, like, spits it out. He doesn't expect the bubbles. And I'm like, yes, that is exactly what it's like being an American in, in the UK. Of they, <laughs> they shock you with the... They shock you with the bubbles. Mm. Yeah, that's that's good. That's funny. Yep. So, so yeah, that's who I am in a nutshell. Yeah. So so are you learning? Uh, are are you gonna have to go over there and do um, on site? Uh, any any type of on site learning over there, or is it mostly just uh, online then? Uh, so m- my PhD degree, I go over there once a year uh, for a stint. Um, and I'm very grateful that it's taken out of my tuition fee. So it's like a, in a sense, all paid trip to England for two weeks, but I do wow. pay for it on the front end. Um, you know, so that's, uh, that's either here or there, but I grateful for that. So I go over there for two weeks, hang out. There's a bunch of other distant students that are, that are there with me. Um, we all stay at the same hotel and we do different kinds of, uh, sessions, a lot of these aren't like uh, your classes, Brian. It's not like I'm going over there to take like a philosophy of mind class or a theology class. We're going over there and we take all these seminars on uh, preparing for your defense or here's how you organize better or here's professional development stuff. It's, it's a lot of professional development stuff for PhD students. But the real benefit is being able to collaborate just with your fellow students. I, I hung out with my advisors I went to I went to a couple of conferences. I got to go with my advisor, Professor Nagasaw, to someone's house and visit with people and meet professors, go to their offices. And it, it, it's a really fun time. Um, but it's not that I'm going over there for classes. My classes, because um, in the European model of the PhD, you just work on your dissertation, your thesis for three years. Um, so I've been working my thesis uh, for two, a little over two years now. And I have, I have about a year left, you know, ish. And um, um, my main stuff is I just Zoom slash Skype with my advisors every month. I send them my materials. We go over stuff. We talk about here's what I've written, what's bad, what's good. Can you help me with this idea? And they talk me through it. And uh, it's really invaluable just to be able to, like, meet up with these two guys and be like, hey, how dumb am I? How, you know, like, can you get, is there anything encouraging about what I've done? And it's, uh, you know, they want the best for me and it's always good. But I think as any student has, like, there's always these anxiety attacks of like, oh, oh my sure. gosh, they hate me. <laughs> they want to kick me out. 
And it's not at all true, but I have experienced these anxiety like so much, and it's gotten better over the two years. But uh, it, I, I experience them all the time still. <laughs> Do you know Laverne Smith now, Doctor Laverne Smith? I don't know. She recently, uh, her her husband is Seafred Smith. He teaches up at Liberty, and I think she teaches at Liberty too, if I'm not mistaken. But I think she. I do remember Fred Smith. She that yeah, that's his wife. She recently graduated uh, with her PhD from uh, Birmingham, <laughs> from the from the University of Birmingham. Oh, interesting. I wonder what she did. Uh, I I'm looking her up. That's interesting. Um, yeah, it, it it's a really interesting. They have a really well-produced um, distance learning PhD program. Um, it's just one of the better produced ones. Logistics are set up well for it. Um, but yeah, I, I do my PhD in philosophy. And so I'm in the philosophy department. Uh, when I go over there, I have a lot of theology friends. And so like the first, when, when I was over there, I uh, in 2019, before the pandemic. Um, I didn't get to go last year because of the pandemic. Um, and this year, my trip has been postponed. I, I'm not sure if I'll get to go this year or not. But um, the, the first year when I was there, I was really amazed at the diversity of people that were there studying Christian theology. Um, and again, as a, I love theology. I am, in a sense, a theologian, an analytic theologian, if, if you will. But um, I, I am primarily a philosopher. And it was funny hanging out with all these theology students because it, I mean, it was really every stripe. And I remember there's one night where I, cause they were all in a hotel together. Right. And so I'm having dinner with these guys and one of them identified as an evangelical Canadian pastor. And the other one identified as like an evangelical pastor somewhere in North Carolina. I'm not going to give the city just in case he hears this <laughs> so to identify him. And uh, I, I think we are friends on Facebook. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, we had dinner this night and we we're chatting about virtually, you know, it's one of these theology dinners with buddies. And, you know, this goes like five or six hours from like 5 PM to like 11 or something. And there are multiple points where everyone else in this hotel dining room is staring at us because they're <laughs> shouting. And uh, it was interesting. You know, like there were moments where uh, like the one of the people um, was arguing for the view, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Brian, but I had not dealt with this. <laughs> I mean, I guess I read about it in undergrad in some book. I've never met someone that said it. Uh, he held the view that like all of the Old Testament was like written by Josiah, right? Oh wow! This theory? <laughs> like I like I've read about this view, but like it's like yeah, it's view. been a long time. I think it was in maybe undergrad or something or early grad, you know. <laughs> and like he held this view, like you know, he denied inerrancy and denied biblical authorship. Most of the denied, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he like had this view, like okay, we discussed that, and that was weird. And the other guy is like, I'm a Pelagian. <laughs> oh wow! I was, like, I was like, "What do you say to that?" And I was like, "No one's ever said this to me." And then, you know, the first guy again. This is just like very different. Like, you know, one guy believes that uh, some, and I'm, I'm not maybe butchering. I'm, I'm sorry for listening to this. I'm misremembering this. I don't mean to misremember your views, friend. Um, who's listening to this? But you know, he's sort of an ecological, environmental theology guy, and he was arguing essentially that like. 
you know, global warming policies and ecology stuff or like bring in the eschaton in some sense. And that was interesting. What well, 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 he says, so, so in other words, by being ecological, you're bringing in the eschaton? Yeah, that, like you can bring it in by like, yeah, like, yeah, if, if we all sort of took care of the world and did these ecological things. Sounds like a post-millennial yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, it is kind of post-millennial. It is kind of post. It was like you know, it's very it like I, I keep reading these just funny examples that I, I hope I'm not boring your listeners. But you know, and like the other guy again. So one guy's like, you know, I believe in this weird thing about the Old Testament. The other guy's like, I'm a Pelagian, <laughs> and then the other guy, the, then the first guy's like, I'm a racist. This is what he said to me: I'm a racist. <laughs> I said, Oh, really? And he said, Yes, I'm a racist. <laughs> I said, uh, Could you not be a racist? <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> and he said no no no, no. I, I just am a racist then we had this long debate about race not debate just discussion and yeah he holds this view about a kind of social view of sin that like sin transfers socially and because his ancestors did bad things to native americans i, I don't say that in a pejorative sense i genuinely don't understand the canadian plight with native americans that's just a fault in my education and so I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know a lot of things about a lot of countries. I don't know a lot of things about that. But he's talking about the Native American suffering that happened, and his ancestors happened to be involved in this 150, 200 years ago. So he said, "Yeah, I'm a racist," and I was like, uh, "Okay, like, can you change? You know, can we get therapy? Like, you know, if you said I'm a pedophile, I'd say go to a psychologist right now. Right? I, I don't understand. Like, what? How can I help you? This sounds bad." And yeah. it's like, nope, this is, a, this is an essential part of me. And I was like, wow, okay, this is interesting. And another guy is, um, uh, what was he called? Um, yeah, and, and, and anyway, that's probably, I was like, these are just very different views. I heard all, I heard everything under the sun from people. And, uh, you know, it, it's really interesting. And uh, I will say, I found, I found, the people that I often said I disagree, I would not work in a church with you were in the theology department of wow. like the philosophers I can hang out with. It's the theologians I worry about. Like they're they're going to get screwed up. <laughs> well, so so we so we leave time for you for for the main part of the podcast. Let, let's let's jump in. <laughs> let's jump in. So as a first time guest, can you tell us how you came to faith in Christ? <laughs> not through that dinner. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, so I, I went to a very low church. And by low church, I mean the opposite of like Catholicism and Anglicanism. Like, you know, I'm sure I'm, I don't know your listeners, but maybe a lot like your listeners of just like, uh, you know, very Baptisty church in Franklin, Tennessee. And I grew up there. Um, my other claim to fame is I, I went to preschool with Miley Cyrus at my church. You did? Um, I did, and I have been told she was baptized at my church at some point. I, I don't know much about that. Um, anyway, there's a whole thing with that, but that's my claim to fame. And so, um, anyway, you know, went to church, uh, grew up there. I was one of these kids that did not care about church. I found church very boring. And uh, in high school, I mean, I think like a lot of kids, um, there is an interest in youth group because it's fun and there's community and I was looking for community. I, th at the time there was actually a girl that was cute that invited me to something. And I was like, Oh sure. And like, well, I always find funny, at least in my memory, my, my memory could be wrong on some of this, but um, I, I remember going to this thing. It was like a small group 
that she invited me to. Her name is Taylor. And I'm, I'm always very grateful for Taylor's invitation because it was always something I always remember was a very big moment of going to this thing. I don't think I've ever told her this. I don't talk to this person now, obviously. This is like, you know, 20 years ago, but not 20, it's like 15 years ago. But, uh, you know, I go to this thing and then like the next week, like she leaves that thing and goes to something else. But I, I, I continue there and I make friends. And, uh, you know, there's a moment through this community I, I felt, um, I, I always, I, I felt like I, I just still needed Christ. I felt like I was just incomplete. And uh, certainly there was a moment where an altar call happened and I felt like I was incomplete. I needed help. I needed to meet Christ. I needed to be with him. Um, and yeah, I like came to know him in s- sometime early in high school. But the thing that I, I always point out to people, like the weird thing is that like I came to know Christ in high school, like a lot of people do, I imagine. Um, but like my high school experience was odd in that like I was discipled in certain areas but I always felt again like I was incomplete and certainly we're all incomplete in a certain sense right like we're all growing and we're all uh cretins to an extent we all have to grow and pursue meaning and responsibility and all that good stuff but um you know I, I still felt like there was something missing from my spiritual life and so I uh decided to go to Liberty University uh like uh, I'm sure you know, Brian, I, I, I went there and um, I began to learn stuff. Like I was shocked that the Bible was actually filled with like historical, interesting things. Like I loved ancient history. I was a big, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if you remember the show. Uh, me and my brother were big like sci-fi fans as a kid. I was kind of nerdy and I loved like Stargate <laughs> and like weird ancient history stuff. I didn't watch the ancient aliens thing, but like. <laughs> oh, I, you didn't see I, the guy who said, I'm not saying this aliens, but it's aliens. Yeah, I, I, I saw the meme later on. <laughs> I loved history. I, I loved, uh, you know, I was a big, I loved Harry Potter and Ender's Game. And I loved Star Wars and all kinds of, and it was just to me when I started to get, uh, I remember in old, I took a class in Old Testament, was just fascinated by it. And I had a good friend in my dorm who had studied more things than I did. And we began reading the Bible together. He'd been discipling me. I've been thinking about this a lot more deeply and in more interesting ways. And part of that's just growing up. But part of that's just having a community around me that just helped form me. And I got baptized at Liberty. And it shocked me that, like, I learned things like the Nicene Creed. Cool thing. Love it. Okay, so if, Nic- if Nicene Creed, like the Trinity, is true, which I never understood the Trinity before I went to Liberty, uh, to, to any degree. And, uh, you know, I was like, okay, so Mormons aren't Christians. Good to know. I, I've now learned this at Liberty. Some <laughs> things taught me this. I don't need to get into that. And uh, I went back to my home church, and I realized that some of my pastors at my home church didn't know this. Hmm. Like, I had pastors that were like, oh, they're not? Like, this is, I, I don't know. And uh, I, I realized at a very hearty realization that like a lot of the spiritual leaders of my church were not that well educated and that bothered the bejesus out of me. I was very like, what is like, how do you get this job? Like I, and it, it has bothered me ever since. And I would say it still bothers me today that like a second year student in Bible college knows more than the average pastor in the U S um, that does bother me a great deal. But I say that, and I say that um, I am incredibly encouraged and given life when I meet pastors that I think are just doing awesome work. And I'm going, yes, like this is what God has called these people to do. 
Um, but at least my own experience, I would say that has always shaped a little bit of my view of the church of, man, I think we could be doing better than this. Um, and I'm, I'm always thinking of ways of how can I help? How can we better this? How can we, how can the people of God be better, uh, ambassadors of God's kingdom to the world? Um, and I don't have great answers on all of this, uh, I thought I did, and then I listened to that Mars Hill podcast, like I'm sure many of you did, and then I became a, l- a little bit more depressed and thinking about it even more. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm still thinking about a lot of these kinds of questions. Um, certainly, as a, you know, when I became a Christian and grew in Christian, I'm always growing as a Christian. Uh, you know, it takes it takes people to help me. It took people to help me, and, you know, I'm growing with my wife and growing as, with my kids, and my small group at church has been hugely influential on me. And uh, I can't speak enough for how important like the small group aspect has been in my own spiritual flourishing of just having Christians around me to constantly keep my mind on this and to be thinking about how can we help each other and work together. And uh, that, that component has, has been essential for me from the moment I came to church to today as I'm in church, the, my small group currently is like one of the most important institutions in my faith that really helps me and you know i think that's that's an area i think that we can all agree that well a lot of the things you just mentioned you know we we definitely have to have better training for our pastors there's no doubt about that especially with a lot of the things that we're dealing with now i mean it it, we Mm. it's kind of like i've heard uh i heard one a police officer say that a police officer loses the right to not be able to run because you got to chase down criminals and i think really right now pastors have lost the right to not be trained in the word of god um, because we're facing some very critical issues um, from the culture, I mean, from in, internally, externally, and uh, I think we need to have a, a much better trained uh, clergy in, in churches. But especially when you're talking about too the uh, discipleship that happens in small groups, groups uh, that is that is definitely invaluable. So you've done a lot of research on the incompatibility incompatibility of free will and physicalism, materialism. What are some of the major problems you find between human free will and an exclusive materialistic universe? Yeah. So this is like I. This is what gets me up in the morning in a weird way. And so, so this is my PhD thesis right here. This is like the whole shebang. Um, And there's probably a lot of foreplay. I could, that's probably the wrong word. Probably a lot of ground I need to talk about first. Um, Sorry, I don't know if the rating is in this podcast. It's it's PG. PG. (laughs) I I think we took it to PG 13. Oh, my bad there. Um, Oh, you're fine. So, uh, I would say first in, in, in my own story, I think it's probably help, more helpful to talk about it like this. Like, uh, you know, as I began to think about apologetic questions, there was always this characteristic atheist that I was like thinking about. And I mean, oddly for me, I was, this, this sounds really roundabout way. Hold on, bear with me. Um, the, one of the first atheists I really dealt with was Bart Ehrman. And so I worked with a guy that I, I know you know Brian, but uh, named Josh Chatro at Liberty, who had written oh, a lot of Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And so I was his grad assistant for a couple of years there. Really? As he like, yeah. So I, I I was with him when we started the Center for Apologetics. Um, I was his coffee man and emailer and um, 
yeah, any weird task that Josh needed to be done, I, I was that guy. Wow. And so um, I was his note taker and all a PowerPoint maker. Um, I remember the day when he spoke in Convo. Fun fact, David Nasser gave us like, I don't know, a 12 hours notice on that. Like I was compiling quotes for him and just like reading <laughs> purposely. I'm like, let me give you things to say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, brainstorm with you because he's speaking the easter convocation <laughs> i got a call like the e- evening before or something and you know i i did all that and uh when i was working with josh i got an opportunity to uh write an article in sean Mc- in one of sean mcdowell's books with josh about bart airman and i found it really interesting to read i read a bunch of bart airman books and i had done a bunch of hebrew exegesis work in undergrad and grad and in undergrad uh, with the great donald fowler who greatly influenced me and um i was moved and a lot of ways by Hebrew and getting into the text. And Bart Ehrman was one of these first atheists I encountered. That was just interesting to me. I like Bart Ehrman is a weird cat that he is a biblical scholar who's not a Christian, which is perfectly normal. There's lots of biblical scholars who aren't Christians out there. But um, like I kept finding myself like thinking that like Bart Ehrman held really weird views on things. And uh, one of the things he's very famous for is he believes that historians can never speak about supernatural events. And I thought, mm-hmm. okay, I wonder why. And then he gives this argument from David Hume. That's and says, like, say well, it's probably David Hume involved in that somewhere. Yeah, and he gives this very Humean argument, which I want to point out is very strange for a historian to bring up, right? Like, why is a historian bringing up a, a philosophical argument from David yeah. Hume? Yeah, And he brings this up. And Hume argued that um, if a miracle happened, by definition, miracles are, you know, they're, they're few and far between. So they're always improbable. Therefore, any other explanation of the event will be more likely because the miracle, by definition, is improbable. This is a, it, a somewhat interesting argument. But, like, in the philosophical literature, like, this sort of probability argument, which is, it, it's all it is, an argument of probability calculuses and stuff, statistics and like like, uh john airman a great philosopher of science and like i don't know the 60s or 70s like debunked this and showed what an error it was because we had a lot of work in the philosophy of of, in philosophy of science on the probability calculus and i remember watching a debate between him and william lane craig where craig showed this and said hey this isn't right you've misunderstood how probability works here's how it really works and then you know, Bart Ehrman kind of looked at him and said, if you think you're going to convince me with a bunch of math, you know, you don't know what, you know, you don't know what we're talking about or something. And I was just sort of aghast at, like, you want to use philosophy this one moment, but, like, not ever again? And it, it was just strange to me. I, I was just, and I, so I, anyway, I, I did my master's in philosophy. Again, I, was, I had this kind of apologetic bent to it, and um, that, that, that was all, I did a lot of philosophy in my master's work. It was all good and interesting. And one thing I kept running up against is that there are a lot of different kinds of atheists. And so you might be familiar, and the listeners might be familiar with like Ricky Gervais. Oh, yeah. yeah he was the office in England. Yeah, yeah. So I took me to think of it. Yeah, the office. Yeah, the office in England. Yeah. Uh, he does a lot of late night shows where he gives this little spiel about how he's an atheist and all that means is he doesn't believe in the Greek and the Roman and the Hindu gods like the Christians. He just also doesn't believe in the Christian oh, God. Yeah. yeah, he goes one step further, he, he argues. 
Right. And uh, so in his mind, atheism is just a kind of thing of like, it's the natural state of things. It's just sort of like, well, I just don't believe in one thing. And um, it's interesting to me because as I kind of kept, as I, as I read about a lot of things, it seemed clear to me early on for a lot of reasons that are a little bit complicated, take a little longer than I want to get into, that like that's not a really interesting form of atheism. <laughs> that like uh, atheism is like, you know, that it, it's sort of like if I were to ask Ricky Gervais, like, hey, um, why should I believe in atheism? He might say, well, you know, it's just kind of a natural thing. Like, you know, I, he would say the burden of proof is on me. And I would say, well, no, 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 no. Um, this is like, and I, I would say, like, the burden of proof is on both of us. We both have proofs here. It's like we're, you know, both running for office. We both have to convince people to vote for us. Um, you don't get to say all votes count for me um, if Ben doesn't convince you. You still have to convince them. Mm. This would be like Joe Biden going out and saying and rigging the machines to say, hey, um, if you don't vote, your vote counts for me or something. It's just like it doesn't work. It's not how it works in real life. You have to actually make claims and arguments. And um, in the philosophical literature, most philosophers think about atheism in two predominant forms. So the first form is what we might call naturalism. So naturalism is a very broad umbrella and can encompass a lot of people. The second view is what I call physicalism. Now this is, I, I mean, I, 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 at least in my lingo, it's synonymous with the word materialism. Uh, people use them interchangeably. It doesn't really matter which one you want. But the main difference is this, is that if you are a physicalist, your claim is that physics explains all of reality. Um, that physics, that everything is made up of like microphysical bits, the, like everything, like this bookshelf, the stars, the fox, me, uh, everything is either a microphysical particle or is somehow like aggregated from microphysical bits. The physicalist is saying that um, physics uh, is everything and anything. So um, there's an interesting question here, and it will help me unveil what physicalism is and then i will contrast it with naturalism in just a second to get to my larger point here and i will speak very fast but i will try to be very simple and analogous so um there's a question for the physicalists here that's very simple and that your scientifically minded listeners might ask and that is is the claim that of physicalism that physics is perfect as we know it and the answer is clearly no because then physicalism would be false because physics discovers something new every day and so that that can't be right um but physicalists don't want to say that um, a future, like, well, let's say in 2100, the book of physics then is what I'm talking about. That will be able to explain everything. Because there is a worry here that if that's what you mean, then, like, you could imagine in, 20, in 2100, some physicalist, like, proves God exists or something. <laughs> and, like, and then you're like, oh, so the theory of physicalism... Uh, could be that like Christianity is right, and that doesn't really make any sense. So th th that's not what physicalists want to say either. And so what, what physicalists want to say is something like, uh, you know, listen, in a completed book of physics, of all the physics out there, um, it's not our book right now, but in a futuristic book of physics, 
that is similar to ours in the sense that it does not include anything like God or consciousness or moral truths, moral truths or anything like that. So there's nothing like consciousness or God um, in here in the in this completed physics book. Um, they would say as long as there's no consciousness or God or uh, I guess moral truths really. Um, uh, depending on how you want to orchestrate that. Um, as long as there's nothing like that in the physics book, they would say that can explain everything. Now, the naturalist is a broader umbrella because the naturalist is fine. The naturalist could conceivably believe in things like souls or objective moral truths or, you know, uh, afterlife, for example. Um, they could believe in some of these things, um, but... They believe everything is somehow based in the physical world, that everything is somehow uh, based in physics in some sense. And so they might say something like, well, uh, fundamentally we have uh, microphysical entities, laws, uh, you know, you have that, but maybe there's also, uh, they might say maybe there's also moral truths here. Maybe there's also, um, maybe these, Microphysical things can like this sounds wild but can kind of like supernaturally create novel things like consciousness that aren't at all microphysical but they kind of evolve in a very radical way it's called emergentism um they can hold a variety of positions so prominent people like this like eric wellenberg from nc state who's a really famous atheist that holds to like objective moral truths or any sort yeah. of strong emergentist that believes in consciousness. He, he's um, he's big in the moral apology, well, in the uh, ethics area, because uh, he tries to make an argument uh, that you don't need God to be ethical. Exactly. Yeah, and he he has one of the rare accounts that seems coherent of objective moral truths without God, but it's you you have to take pretty much his whole system of naturalism, which I want to say very clearly. I don't know anyone else that does. Right. Maybe someone does, but that is like <laughs> naturalists don't take his system generally. It's very weird. Um, but uh, David Chalmers at NYU would be a naturalist, um, but he does think that consciousness. Uh, he actually thinks that rocks are consciousness too, which I can talk about in a minute. But uh, he thinks that consciousness is real, and a lot of things that we would say are real. He just doesn't believe in God. So there's like different levels to this. And what I, find, what I found to be the most prominent view of atheism, the most interesting view of atheism, was this view of physicalism. That physics is this ultimate mechanism, this ultimate discipline that explains all of the sciences. That you have physics, and maybe you have, uh, you know, like chemistry and biology, and maybe on top of that we have like psychology and sociology and economics or something. That these disciplines build on each other, but they ultimately reduce down to physics. And if if, I mean, hypothetically, if you were a good enough physicalist, sorry, if you were a good enough physicist, you could also be the world's greatest, like, economist or something. Mm. Yeah, without ever knowing economics. Right. Like, it, it could be like that. Um, and so this is kind of the view of physicalism, that everything in physics explains everything else. So what I found interesting about this view is that... Um, Free will seems to me to be something um, that intuitively objects to this. And I want to explain why I think that is, but I'll sort of give a very brief thing and then I'll let you sort of at, 
ask any questions of where I need to explain more. But um, so if physicalism is true, if you think about yourself as a person, right? Like my name is Ben, I have brown hair, I have a beard, I have glasses, I can walk, I can talk, I can choose a college, I can feel sad in the morning, I can feel happy after drinking a milkshake, I can do all these things. I have this, in, I, am, I am embodied, I have a brain, I have a mind, um, th these sorts of things. And these are all like true facts about me. And um, when you think about our brains for a minute, um, you know, I can look at your brain through um, some sort of machine, right? So I could do like um, an MRI machine. Let's just take that, right? You could do some kind of medical device to just look at my brain. Um, um, I could just do a medical device and just look at your brain and see it. Now, what's interesting here is, Brian, is that if I looked at your brain through whatever machine you want to put here, um, and I were to ask you, like, hey, what are you feeling now? Or let's say, of like, let's say I showed you a picture of, like, you and your wife on your wedding day. And I say, hey, what are you feeling right now? And you could tell me, like, oh, I'm remembering this wonderful day, and I'm uh, commensurating about this, and I'm very happy. And I could see the part of your brain light up and go, mm -hmm. oh, as a scientist, like, I know which part of the brain correlates to this experience of your your uh, very many different things. But think about the functions that go on here. If you are recalling something in the distant past. You are feeling um, joy and happy, maybe many emotions, right? You're, you're, you're imaging something in your mind. You might be thinking of a conversation or connecting it to something. There's all sorts of things going on in your experience and like what you see almost right like what you're imagining but all i can see in your brain is it lighting up and so mm. you often distinguish between the kind of conscious thing of your experience of seeing your wife and what i can see in the brain scan so i can know things in a scientific way about your brain but it i can learn a lot about that but there is a different there is a different uh, animal involved when you talk about your experience of your mind and your consciousness. And so when we talk about the, when I talk about consciousness or the mind, I am making this distinction between the brain and consciousness, like everyone else in philosophy does. But in, I know an ordinary folk, this might seem, sound, sound kind of weird because consciousness involves this subjective aspect that like no science, no device is going to be able to get at which is interesting. And so philosophers for hundreds of years have asked, how do these two things relate? Now, what I find, what I sort of struggled with is that as I was understanding, again, these like very interesting atheists, because these were just like the most interesting atheists to me, to understand these atheists, it seemed to me they were saying that our minds are somehow reducible to our brains, but our brains were also somehow reducible to microphysics, to electrons and fields, wave function, gluons, quarks, whatever. And, and like microphysical laws of nature that like you could sort of take some mental event of like um, the taste of my food or something. That's a mental state of like the taste of my food of like uh, me uh, deciding where to go to college. That would be a mental event of I'm making a decision here. Um, and I can understand this in all sorts of interesting ways. I can talk about being active in decision-making. I can talk about um, 
the attention I'm, I'm using here. I got all self-control and all sorts of interesting facets of my mental event. But what physicalism is saying is that this reduces, in some sense, this is just microphysical bits working. It's just the electrons moving. And to me, um, there was something odd about this. I was like, I, I'm not quite sure. And so what I think is the fundamental problem here, and I think what is a problem, is that when we talk about free will, we are talking about our ability to influence the world, to mm. act in the world, that I can make decisions in the world, that I, if that John Wilkes Booth can take a gun and shoot Abraham Lincoln, that he has that decision to shoot Abraham Lincoln. And um, it seems to me that that fundamental fact about reality, that John Wilkes Booth like consciously chose to shoot Abraham Lincoln, if all that is is electrons moving, I think there is a weird conflict here. Because it seems to me the physicalist um, is bound to say that because the electron, let's say, spun upwardly at such and such velocity, uh, I know that's really simplistic, but because uh, it spun upwardly, John Wilkes Booth shot the gun. Mm. And I was, and I want to be like, what the heck? No, like that, that, that's not right. <laughs> like, right. I mean, that's not why this happened. Like that doesn't work. And um, so, and uh, let me go ahead and pause. Or I guess I, so. Th that's my fundamental like. Uh, obstacle that I hit of in physicalism, it's the microphysical going on that determine our actions. And to me, there is something just goosebumpy about this. That I'm like, I there, I do not like this. I don't. It, 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 do you also get goosebumps when, when if someone were to say that to you? Is that also kind of a weird thing to say? Yeah, I, th I, I th you guys. I think so too, uh, Curtis. Do you have any, you have a question here? I, yeah, we're no, going to try to combine some of the questions because we've actually got about uh, nineteen minutes left, <laughs> and so uh, we. Uh, so I want to get into some evidence you you found for um, the immaterial conscious soul because it's I, I really like this thesis showing how free will shows how we can impact. The, the physical world. So I want to combine some of the questions that we that we had prepared. So so what evidence do you find, particularly in metaphysics and even neuroscience, uh, that corroborates the existence uh, for the the immaterial human soul? Well, the first thing I would start out with is that um, if you're wondering about like does my soul exist or something like that kind of question just hold that question and the simple answer is um throw your foot into a door and tell me if you experience something <laughs> okay. I, i'll take your word for it <laughs> <laughs> yeah so like obviously you experience something and there is this experiential element to consciousness right like the experience of the color red or the taste of my food or the love of my wife, um, the way I see things, the way I experience, like I just this, this idea of the way your experiential life, the way like that's real uh, to reject that is real is very hard to fathom because it's only through our minds that we know anything. That's how we, so we come into with beliefs, how we believe things. And so 
Uh, before I say anything, I just want to like say that like it seems to me very clear uh, that the idea of a kind of consciousness is just a datum of experience. This is just a mm -hmm. datum of evidence. It is just a matter of fact in the sense that we it is something uh, to account for in a theory. In the same way of if you ask me, well, um, could you prove... They say, well, what's the best evidence um, that the Titan, the Tennessee Titans have the greatest running back of all time? I'd be like, all right, well, let's hold on to that for a minute. Um, do you recognize the Titans have Derrick Henry? I'm like, let's talk about that for a minute. He's pretty good. Okay. And so, like, let's talk about what we know we have first. And on this front, when it comes to this kind of experiential consciousness, there is a, a long laundry list of interesting empirical data on this in that there's a set of studies and uh, Richard Swinburne um, does talk about this in uh, a couple of his books, but mind, body, and free will. And uh, are we bodies and souls are good places are, are, are we bodies or souls is, is a good place to start for this. Um, his Oxford OUP book from a couple years ago. Um, there are a lot of studies in showing that if you just do like surveys of people like everyone acknowledges this that like you have this experience conscious and you also like believe that like the way you act in the world involves conscious action that we experience something differently like if you just sort of if i kick your leg and you kind of spasm or something versus if you intentionally kick me that we just know there's a difference between these two movements and we call one action and one like muscle spasms or something. <laughs> and so there is this datum to be explained. Now, the reason that we call this a soul is very simply that when we try to explain consciousness via neuroscience, what neuroscience can do is neuroscience can tell us correlations between things. It can tell us that when you probe this part of my brain, I, I feel X, Y, Z. And that's really interesting. And we can learn about the different mechanisms and the, some of the different functions of the brain and how the brain and the mind function together in an interesting way. But what most philosophers have come to see, and especially philosophers, again, this is like uh, Ned Block and David Chalmers, um, uh, who are, again, our naturalists out there at NYU, but David Chalmers had a huge, hugely influential in this. Um, what a lot of philosophers showed in the past 40 years is that the experiential side of co of consciousness is just not something science is equipped to explain mm. that it, you you might be able to explain um uh different i'm trying to think of a good example is uh if uh, if when john wilkes booth shoots lincoln like you you can probably explain uh how you know the movement from the finger to pull the trigger goes to the nervous system back to the brain and how different parts of the brain are active when this when this action is done you can, you can say what parts of the brain are involved in this how attention is involved in this and there are some functions that are really interesting here how the mind and brain function together and you can explain a lot there but you can't explain the experiential at thing if you just ask the question well when John Wilkes Booth shot Abraham Lincoln, why is it that he experienced what he did? 
imagine if you're, if you're shooting that trigger, you have all this hatred involved for Lincoln. You feel like you're a hero. And there is all these subjective feelings and experiences in this moment. And if you're to ask, well, why did Wilkes have this set of experiences as opposed to something else with this corresponding set of functions? Uh, I don't You can't do anything with that question. If, if, if all you're looking at is like neuroscience or something, it doesn't give you any way to answer this. And so one of the simple reasons for the existence of the soul is simply that there are facts about the mind that are not currently unavailable to us. They, they seem to be forever unavailable to us by means of uh, disciplines like neuroscience or psychology. And so um, given that, for instance, there are aspects of the mind that are not discernible in any way via neuroscience, we have to ask, okay, well, how else do we explain these? Because again, I'm not saying that these things must exist because of something else. I'm saying these things do exist and we have to explain them. And so here, um, it seems like if there are elements of our mind or maybe the whole aspect of our mind, which I think is true, that like it, you can't fully explain via the sciences, via a naturalistic method and physicalism, I, I think it requires a move out of physicalism to something else. And there are different options here. But the most natural word for a non-physical mind is like a soul. So like, most people just call it a soul. That's kind of um, like what uh, Thomas Nagel, well, I mean, I know he's he's still not a believer in God, but you know, when, he, when he wrote the book Mind and Cosmos, you know, he, he recognized that there are problems with the materialistic worldview. Yeah, so Nagel, uh, like, um, maybe a Frank Jackson had a thought experiment like this, which is probably a little easier than Nagel's, of, like, imagine uh, you were colorblind and you were in a room, and somehow, like, you never left this room. Just pretend that. And this is, like, an all-gray, it's, like, all-beige or gray or something where, like, you never see color, and you're colorblind. And um, you become the world's leading experts on uh, flowers, you know everything, like you literally know, imagine like God gave you an infinite amount of years and like you literally know everything there is to know about flowers via textbooks and whatever. Um, well, she, you know, and let's say this girl is Mary and this is, it's called the famous Mary problem of like, Mary I think would know a lot about flowers. You could probably know a lot about flowers. But like imagine God like fixed her eyesight and she could now see and then you gave her a rose. Would she learn something new about the flower? Uh, it's hard to imagine you saying that experiencing the color of flowers like doesn't tell you any new information about the world. It seems like that's part of the world to know. Mm. And Mary lacked information before this. And uh, yeah, when it comes to the idea of like a materialistic or physicalist view of the soul, the core is, is that when it comes to conscious experience, um, it is very difficult to explain experience itself, which is why I see people like Susan Blackmore, for instance, if you watch her debate with Jordan Peterson on um, uh, Justin Brierley's show, um, she says things like, I'm a naturalist in everything but consciousness. And you're like, <laughs> what? <laughs> and it's because of this problem of like, you know, I... And again, I think David Chalmers is a great example of this. And now there's like a whole, there's lots of different uh, workings of how to deal with this. And they're all very interesting. But it is this root problem of 
Uh, consciousness is something that we know better than anything else, but it's something that is, uh, we, we just don't, we, we can't get to naturalistically. And so uh, David Chalmers puts it like this. He says, and again, they've talked naturalist, but he says, consciousness poses the most baffling problems in the sciences of the mind. There is nothing that we know more intimately than conscious experience, but there is nothing that is harder to explain. And uh, Chalmers view is that you have to get rid of physicalism of like, mm. you can't do materialism. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think there is something um, right about this when you get to the soul and the mind. And I think when you get to free will, um, free will and free action is something that involves your mind. You are intentionally and consciously doing stuff. And if your mind is not a physical thing, which is clearly not to me. And uh, when you talk about free will, this is not purely a physical thing. Right. And uh, I think that is something to consider. I think free will is a fun area that really is the crux of this issue um, because it gets at sort of consciousness, all of these questions and questions about physicalism, materialism. Um, and I, I, I find it very fun. Um, there's lots of good thought experiments. I'm, another one I'll, I'll bring up, which I think is a fun one, is like, uh, we can't do it today, but like it wouldn't shock me if we could do it soon. Um, Richard Swinburne, the great philosopher from Oxford, the Christian philosopher, um, I often say he's my spirit animal on a different note. <laughs> um, uh, he uh, gives this argument of like, uh, imagine someone cut your brain in half and put the left side of your brain in person, in like another person, and the right side of your brain in a third person. So person A has the left side of your brain and person B is the right side of your brain. Okay. This is strange for a number of reasons. It seems scientifically possible, but what seems odd here is that before the brain procedure, I know you're Brian. Mm. I go, there's Brian. <laughs> but after the brain procedure, I know where all the material parts of Brian are, but I have no idea where Brian is. Mm. Maybe you're in person A, maybe you're in person B, maybe you're dead. Uh, but it's weird that I can know where all of your material bits are, but I don't know where you are. Right. And it seems that um, if materialism were true, A, the fact that the material stuff exists suggests that you should exist. Um, but B, it suggests that um, if materialism were true, then like you should know where Brian exists if you know where the material stuff exists, but you wouldn't know here. It'd be really impossible. That's a really funky experiment. Um, but uh, th there are lots of examples. Like, the, the core idea I would say is that we're talking about arguments for the soul. The idea, the, the main issue is obviously conscious experience exists. How do we explain that? Is there a way to say conscious experience is just, electrons and fields and fu wave functions and stuff um and i don't think there is a way to do that yeah. um and there are reasons for that but i do want to point out for listeners it's not a question of us not being smart enough it's a question of um bringing a baseball bat um to a um you know software engineering debate or a program or something it's like you're bringing a completely wrong set of tools for this task mm. not a tool that you can progressively make work but a tool that you can never make work yeah that makes sense C curtis you have any any questions to add uh you know no we can just keep rolling i i've got a few questions but we'll just keep rolling so we can get through this sure so so just a couple just 
few follow-up questions. Uh, first, what should the layperson take away from this at the, at the most simplistic form? What should they take away from this? And then also after that, uh, tell, tell us a little bit about your ministry and how uh, people can contact you or access your resources. Well, um, the first thing I would say is that um, I think everyone should realize that they are more than material bits. Mm. They are more than rocks. They are conscience and they are uniquely level of conscious unlike anything that we know and that when you think about the way we operate in the world and in our bodies um the way that god has made us um we you know when, when paul says that our our body is a temple right um this is more than just like uh a suggestion here this is a really scary and important command here that um, our body is a temple, and you think about what temples inside have, you know, God seating in them. And inside our bodies is our, is our mind, is our consciousness, is our soul. And, um, you know, when we think about ourselves as very intricate people where our minds and our bodies are intertwined so much that our bodies affect our brain. So, like, you know, simple examples, a lot of these come from, like, psychologists. Jordan Peterson's a great example of people that point this out of, like, you know, if you don't wake up at the same time every day, you mess up your circadian rhythms, you get depressed, you make bad decisions, you know, you, you do hellish things. And think about, like, just, like, your body can really mess up your mind, and you need to take care of your body because it will screw up your mind. But at the same time, like, you have to take care of your mind, and you have to know that, like, hey, if you have OCD, if you have... Um, a mental issue that, you know, if, if you're depressed, if, if you're catastrophized, if you're anxiety, like, you know, your mind is sort of forming your brain and your body in um, vicious ways towards yourself. You're like hurting yourself and you need to form yourself and whether that means cognitive behavioral therapy or whatever you need to do to help yourself of building up your temple of viewing it as just, you know, it's not just your body, it's your, you know, your mind and your, but you're all supposed to be representatives of Jesus and, having this Holy Spirit indwell you and reform you. And this takes a lot of work to do. And you think about your actions in the world of when you are acting in the world and you're exercising your God-given free will and your God-given free actions in the world of you are unlike most things in the world. Most things do not, in, raccoon, or, raccoons do not have free will in my view. Uh, they might have some lower form of it, but they don't have free will in my view. But like Rocket Raccoon from Marvel does that, you know, we are created uniquely in this that we have this interesting way that we can be virtuous and vices and we can grow in holiness and we have to work you know through our actions and pursue the good and all of this is hard work and i would say do not fall into the lies out there that you are just material bits but you know you have consciousness you can make actual decisions for yourself and take responsibility and grow in holiness and pursue the kingdom of god and you know be transformed by that and help transform others um you know don't fall into the lies that um people out that the you know the world will tell you about sort of uh you know non-christian ways to bring in the eschaton or to uh you know, fulfill the longing we all have for heaven. But no, that's not, you know, we can't do that through earthly forms. You can only do that through the Holy Spirit and through Christ. And we know the way, um, 
you know, I, I think the whole idea of spiritual formation is just really tied to this. But um, the other thing I would say is please help me um, and read, read more books. Mm. And I mean this like in a very genuine way of it is, and again, I, I might be just, I might just be like really messed up in this, but like it frustrates me to no end seeing students and parents and college students not being readers and Mm -hmm. students who are emulating their parents who are always on their smartphones and parents who are church members who will never read books or even like read, you know, like the, I don't know, the wall street journal or something, but is always sharing very quick, non interesting sort of like blog posts and stuff like that. Like uh, I'd say, you know, in exercising your mind, you need to challenge yourself and grow. And reading is one of the great ways to do this. And cell phones is one of the greatest ways to like destroy your ability to do that. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And Jordan Peterson says all the time, I think it's great of like, listen, you're either moving forward or you're moving back and there is no standing still. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as you're thinking about how to grow your family and how to grow your church, um, you know, think about these skills of like, how do you teach wisdom and how do you teach godly judgment? And uh, one of the things I often like and <laughs> say is just like, you know, like one of the ways to do that is uh, to, um, you know, not to do your best. And that's all I'm saying. Do your best. Make a choice. Make a pattern. Make a schedule to be less on social media. And that's fine if you are on social media. I'm really saying you're fine. Be on social media. You know, decrease online stuff increase your reading right get more reading get more in-person conversations get more friends around you increase your mental health increase your ability to do these things um emulate them for your kids um but uh you know christians need to be doing these things and no one and people aren't reading people aren't being good social people and people aren't being good friends but uh you know christians aren't either and uh, i you know, I, I, I beg you to make a friend and read a book. I, th- I think you're making some great points there, and I think that's something that would be good even for another podcast because I'm, I'm kind of concerned about uh, the, the things that you just mentioned, how it's even affecting the general populace. And uh, uh, it, it seems like people aren't able to logically uh, – Put together good arguments anymore, and right. and and not willing, not even able. I mean, Curtis and I were talking about this even before the podcast. Simple, the simplest things that uh, were well known five years ago are even being <laughs> are misunderstood now. So I think yeah. that is a very very good point. We are actually running out of time. Curtis, do you have any uh, concluding questions? No, I'm just uh, I'm just kind of just sitting here. How how much of what we believe, how it affects just our soul, and, yeah. we, and we know that scripturally, but how it affects our soul in practical application as we go through life, um, it's important. I, I, you got some good points here. Yeah, and I, I would say too, I mean, I, I think reading about a lot of things is great. Um, if you're more interested in these, if you're actually interested in the question of like, souls free will i think richard swinburne's are we souls or bodies is a good one i think gavin ortland has a new book 
on apologetics coming out or on reality coming out that's gonna joshua rasmussen is another person i would highly recommend um these are people um jerry walls jp um, JP morland's got a book out on on the souls too i think it's called the soul yeah and i i I know joshua rasmussen has one book out on can we reason to god he has another book coming out soon um that i think will be really really good and i'm really excited to get into it if you want to read a book by a naturalist that is interesting. I, I do recommend a book by Philip Goff called Galileo's Error, which he argues for everything I'm arguing, but then argues for like a really weird theory at the end of it. But it's, uh, I, I think it's interesting just to see like the problems and materials. But I, I, I would say too, like I, I think I, I literally buy Jordan Peterson's book for all my friends for Christmas. And uh, I always recommend his 12 Rules for Life. I recommend Dallas Willard's Spiritual Formation stuff. Oh, that's a great, um, great book. Great. Yeah, and, he's got some great uh, great work out there. And I, I, I think constantly thinking about how can you spiritually transform yourself, um, how, can you, how can you daily transform is really good. Anything about spiritual practices I, I think is good. But certainly there's lots of great books out there that like, I, I think reading in general on anything, like I, I just read the Dune book for the first time. If you've read Dune before. I haven't. That's on my queue to, of, to, of two read books. I understand the movie's coming out, but the books are always better. Yeah. I had COVID recently and I had a lot of time to like in quarantine. <laughs> I was like, what am I going to do? And I got to read. And I, was, I was like, I'll buy Dune. And so I, I bought Dune and read it. And it, it was a real pleasure. I, I think reading is just one of these things that, uh, we need I I need to incorporate more in my life, and people I think Christians could incorporate more as well. But for, I mean, for me too, I one of the things I often hit myself on is that when I'm watching my daughters and we're playing outside on on my phone, I I always feel so much better and accomplished when I'm with them, and I'm I literally have a book in my hands and I'm reading it, even if I get just a page in for them to ask me, "What are you reading, Dad? What are you doing?" And I'm saying, "Oh, I'm 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 doing you know I'm reading. It's my favorite thing to do." and I think showing them these skills and emulating that is just it, it is just in, incalculable in what it does. And uh, I see the daily effects of my college students and my high school students about uh, you know what it you know what our culture does to them when they don't read. And so I'm, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So so tell us, being real real quickly, uh, how can people get in contact with you and tell us about your ministry? Uh, yeah, so I'd say um, I do have a website uh, that's called. Uh, benjaminwhittington.com you're welcome to go there i have some information about myself there um i don't have any books coming out or anything like that to um you know sell you i've often thought about writing a book titled um crazier love or more radical or the more purposeful driven life something like this Um, i've not quite done those yet (laughs) but um i uh it I do have a couple ambitions. They're probably not going to happen for about five years, but uh, I've I, I finished a PhD in this next year, and um, I have about 150 pages written. I've probably got 100 more to go, and uh, I'm hoping to write a book on uh, physicalism and free will and theism. And I'm it might be a multi-volume work, but I'm working a lot on this. And this will have to do with what's about physics and quantum physics and action and free will and minds and consciousness and God. I'm, and I'm, you know, I've started toy with some of these thoughts, uh, but I'm working a lot my thesis. But I think after my thesis, I'd like to write a little bigger work on this. And uh, I'd also love to write a biography of Richard Swinburne. 
um, at some point in my life. There's, oh. my, there's a two projects I'd love to do at some point. All sounds fantastic. Ben, thank you for being with us tonight. Uh, we have completely run out of time. Uh, great stuff, and, uh, you know, you gave us some great information about the soul. And, you know, one of the, one of the big things towards the end of the podcast that I think everybody needs to, to hear and um, a good exhortation to, to, to myself and to everyone is to spend less time online, less time on social media, and more time reading. I think that is wonderful wonderful advice and something that i think we all need to heed so we're going to turn it back over to curtis at this time yeah well thanks ben that was that was good to have you certainly thank you so we here at bellator christie want to thank you for spending time together with us and we value that time our prayers that this podcast help stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith and strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. Until next time, Brian and I say, So So long, friends. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie Podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. Do you have a question about the Bible, theology, or apologetics that you've always wanted to ask but never felt comfortable asking? If so, we want to encourage you to head over to bellatorchristie.com and submit your question on the Submit a Question link. Your question will be reviewed and may be featured on a future article or podcast. Remember, the only dumb question is the one unasked. So go over to bellatorchristie.com now and submit your question.